Hello and welcome to what is the series finale of the first series of the Family Law Podcast. After today's enlightening episode, we will be taking a short break, but don't worry though, to borrow a phrase from another podcast, we will be back stronger. To round off this series then, I'm thrilled to be joined by the learned Leslie Samuels, Queen's Council, to discuss special guardianship orders. Leslie has been a silk since 2011 and is, a ranked, uh, is ranked as a leading barrister, both in the Legal 500 and Chambers and Partners. He has a list longer than my arm, probably both my arms actually, of reported cases, with expertise in complex public children law, private law cases, and family finance. In addition to his stellar practice, Leslie also sits as a Deputy High Court Judge, both at the RCJ and across the country. He is a qualified mediator, IFLA trained arbitrator, and conducts private FDRs. Who better then to walk us through special guardianship orders at a time of potential change in light of the Public Law Working Group report? Leslie, hello. Thank you very much for joining us today. Mark, thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> right, it's a pleasure to have you here and I really look forward to hearing what you've got to say about this interesting and potentially evolving topic. But if we may start with the absolute basics for perhaps the less familiar or the uninitiated, what are special guardianship orders? Let's start there. Well, special guardianship orders were introduced uh, a long time ago, actually, uh, 2002, uh, in the Adoption and Children Act. And, and really, very basically, uh, the aim was to uh, hit a middle ground between, on the one hand, child arrangements orders, uh, which didn't provide any permanence or security necessarily for a child, and on the other hand, the other end of the spectrum, uh, adoption, which provides complete uh, security and permanence uh, for a child away from uh, his or her natural uh, family. So it was really to strike into the middle ground in situations where a permanence is needed, but to place a child, for example, with family members such as grandparents or aunts and uncles or, or sometimes with previous foster carers. Um, so and that's where it sits in the range of orders that are uh, available. Um, but uh, of course, um, with any new piece of legislation, there are teething troubles and uh, certainly special guardianship has in recent years come in for a bit of criticism. And there have been some really quite high profile cases where uh, special guardianship orders have been made in favour of people who turned out to be unsuitable. Uh, and probably the most extreme example of that uh, was a little girl called Xi'an Downer, uh, who was murdered by her special guardian um, in 2015, convicted in 2017. And there was a, um, a review, a special, uh, special cases review uh, of um, the, uh, uh, what happened for Xi'an. And that uncovered quite a lot of deficiencies in the whole process uh, leading up to the making of the order. And just, just to stop there a moment, when we talk about the making of the order, obviously with children proceedings, we have the private sphere and we have the public sphere. Um, I understand that in that case, that was a, a, a made in public law proceedings, but it's possible to have an SGO in private law proceedings as well, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, so 
uh, quite often special guardianship orders can be made at the conclusion of public law proceedings, but equally uh, there can be a private law uh, set of proceedings that result in special guardianship orders and, and never involve a local authority in, to the extent of being parties to proceedings. Is it, is it the same sort of process or are we talking about quite a different set of rules for a private application versus being made in public proceedings? No, no it's, a, it's a similar process in the sense that there has to be uh, notification given to the local authority and they have to prepare a detailed report. They have in private law proceedings three months to provide uh, a special guardianship report so they will be very much involved in assessing uh, whether the placement is suitable. Of course in public law proceedings local authority are parties anyway and so will be very heavily involved in the assessment process. Thanks. I, I think you were, before I rudely interrupted, you were talking about the, the recent controversies behind, uh, associated with special guardianship orders. Um, obviously, we, I, I mentioned that there's the, the public law working group report that, 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 that's come out relatively recently. What would you say are the, the, the underlying problems that have been identified around, around the process of making these orders? They... Uh, become very much linked problems to other reforms that have taken place within the uh, public law system. So uh, really pressure upon the courts increased when the uh, 26 week rule came in and the idea that uh, you can and should conclude proceedings within that period of time. Uh, that started a clock running so far as um, assessments are concerned and quite often uh, potential special guardians only come to the fore in proceedings, in particular public law proceedings, when there has already been a period of time that's elapsed and uh, for one reason or another the parents have uh, fallen away as potential carers for their children, for example, if very serious findings have been made against one or both parents. And so what was tending to happen was that special guardians were being, or potential special guardians were being identified, and then there was quite a pressure placed on the assessment process to truncate that process so that it uh, fell neatly within the 26 weeks. The difficulty that that posed is that a really quite complex piece of work that might otherwise take 14 or 16 weeks to complete was directed to be undertaken in six or eight weeks. Uh, and that meant that the assessment process was perhaps less thorough uh, than it would have been otherwise. And one of the other difficulties that uh, had arisen was the involvement of special guardians in the court process. Clearly, if, um, they, uh, if it's private law proceedings, then ordinarily one would expect a potential special guardian to have made an application for the order. Difficulty in public law proceedings, particularly where special guardians are, are not routinely uh, represented because they're not eligible for legal aid, it is that rather than requiring special guardians to make an application, uh, the court will consider the option special guardianship of its own motion. Now, the statute provides for that to be a possibility, so there was nothing unlawful there, but it rather tended to emphasise that special guardians were not necessarily at the forefront themselves of the process. 
for example, if they're not parties, then they're not entitled actually to be in the courtroom. Uh, and quite often they felt rather excluded from the process. That is, is that, for example, in a situation where you're put forward as a special guardian and there is perhaps a negative viability assessment and then you want to challenge that negative viability assessment. I, I know from when I did this kind of work that that's, that's when I represented a chap and we were joined to proceedings as a party effectively to challenge the ne negative assessment. Is, is that the kind of the process issue that you, you had in mind? Mark, yes and no. Um, the, the sort of situation that uh, you've identified uh, cries out for the need for separate representation because the um, local authority and perhaps the children's guardian not supportive of those uh, carers as being potential special guardians. But no, what I really had in mind was the opposite situation where the potential special guardians were subject to a positive assessment because that led people to think, well, because they are being supported by a local authority, for example, they don't need their own representation. Indeed, they don't need to be involved in the process. But when there's been quite a lot of research uh, talking to special guardians and, and analysing what's happened within the process, and actually those who were notionally being supported in their application felt equally disenfranchised from the process. So, for example, they would uh, discuss sitting outside court knowing that their application, their potential application was being discussed in the courtroom, but they weren't able to uh, be part of that. And where that led to problems in particular was at the end of the process. So uh, everyone would be focused on the primary question about whether they, a special guardianship order would or wouldn't be made in their uh, favour. But of course, special guardianship is a whole lot more complex than that. They will be left, I mean, literally, with a child delivered to them. And they may have, well have a range of needs, for example, financial support to look after that child or for support to manage contact with parents. And those sort of issues weren't being discussed because it didn't necessarily fall within the remit of anybody else who was involved in the process to consider those issues in any detail. So they would feel that they were being left without clarity or support uh, about exactly what, what was going to be provided to them. I mean, just picking up on that, where does a, a special guardian stand then in comparison to, say, a foster carer? They say that there's one scenario, the, the child's placed or special guardianship order is made. The other scenario is child's placed in long-term foster care. How is the special guardian treated differently in terms of the support that they get? So there's a huge difference, um, uh, and indeed uh, a huge difference between special guardians and adopters. Uh, so foster carers and adopters are provided with information and training. Uh, all, they also have, uh, will have their own social workers. So uh, in your example, a foster carer will have a whole support network around them, and parental responsibility, of course, is held overarchingly by the local authority. So any issues, for example, about managing parental contact will not be for the foster carers to manage. It will be for the local authority and the social workers to manage. Compare the situation to that of a special guardian, but as soon as the order is made, effectively, that well, they do have 
uh, parental responsibility uh, for the child. They're left to manage issues, quite often issues such as um, contact, and there may be a lack of clarity, they often complain, a lack of clarity about what the support plan involved. So there should be a special guardianship support plan, uh, but that special guardianship support plan could often be um, cut, cut and pasted for, from a different document. Uh, there can typographical errors, they complain about referencing to he rather than she or vice versa and phrases which are rather meaningless such as financial support will be considered um, or appropriate financial support will be provided but what does that mean in real terms it means nothing um, and so all the questions that perhaps should have been asked on their behalf in the course of the process were, were, were never asked in the court process in terms of the obligation sorry on the local authority say that someone was there they were separately represented how, how, where does the local authority stand in terms of a judge being able to say i expect you to provide x or y um, to a special guardian so there are very detailed regulations uh, which cover the content of um firstly assessments um and then uh, at the end of the process the support plan that should be put in place and the difficulty is that it has to be uh, one has to analyze those regulations and look in detail at how for example the local authority are calculating any allowance that they are paying to the special guardian. Um, so that there should really be a very high level of detail in these plans. And, and uh, that's one reason why it's necessary for special guardians to feel they are being advised and supported through the process. The difficulty is in the absence of public funding, they either uh, pay for representation themselves or are dependent on local authority to provide them with some level of, of advice uh, and sometimes representation. But, but that's an absolute must. And I, I think in these situations, uh, it's very much enhanced by them having to make applications because it's not just filling out a, a form and, and submitting it to the court office, they gain party status. And that can be very important. Quite often in these cases, uh, because it's felt that the special guardians don't have a separate case to run, they're not granted party status. That was looked at really, uh, quite extensively in a, in a court appeal decision called REPS. Uh, and, and what essentially was said there about party status is that once there is a positive viability assessment, uh, the court should look very carefully at granting party status to potential special guardians so that they are represented uh, at really the crucial part of the proceeding. Makes sense, really. Um, I mentioned the public law working group. Now, I, I know that they were sort of doing uh, a more general report, but they felt obliged to release a specific report just on, on special guardianship orders. Why, why has that been put front and centre? Um, you're right, Mark. And, and the, um, uh, it's really shows the importance that um, the judiciary and um, the uh, uh, really senior members of the profession have placed upon this issue that in COVID times when there were a lot of pressing issues and when perhaps reform of the family justice system wasn't uppermost in everybody's mind, uh, nonetheless, uh, the working group uh, did decide to publish a bespoke report in June uh, looking at special guardianship. And that's because uh, special guardianship orders were being seen as risky placements. 
uh, and children's lives, as I've already indicated, were were being put at risk, and certainly their physical health and emotional health was put at risk by uh, the potential of being placed with family members. Uh, and and, and another issue that had arisen um, was whether through the truncation of the uh, assessment process, actually proper relationships had been formed and, and indeed there'd been an opportunity to assess those relationships. So to, to give you an example, uh, the sort of situations that were arising um, I, I was involved in, in a case uh, where not only had the children um, never lived with the detention special guardians, uh, two of the children concerned had never met one of the special guardians, and yet it was proposed by the local authority that final orders should be made in, in favour of that potential special guardian. So something definitely needed to be done and needed to be done urgently, uh, hence why uh, the Public Law Working Group uh, decided that it was going to uh, publish its report. Well, let's let's talk about the report then. Um, if you could, uh, can help us in terms of what 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 were the conclusions that that report's reached, and um, and what recommendations have they made? Yes, so they they they, they divided up their uh, recommendations into two categories. Firstly, uh, matters that really needed very urgent attention. Uh, and the first of those uh, it, it was uh, to uh, make sure that the assessment and support plan sort of talked about um, really the two stages. Firstly, the local authority provides a uh, comprehensive assessment. And then secondly, if they're uh, proposing placement, will provide a detailed support plan. So both of those needed to be robust and compliant uh, with the relevant regulations and all too often uh, the uh, working group was saying that the assessments provided and support plans were simply not of the highest calibre, not the sort of calibre that one would see with, for example, reports on prospective adoptions. Um, so, and, and all of this needed to be enhanced, particularly when the children had little or no prior relationship with the potential special guardians. And that all needs to be done really before the court reaches a position where it's uh, going to make final orders. So uh, that was one recommendation. Another recommendation is that, um, as I've already indicated, the case law had uh, supported the uh, representation, proper representation, party status being given to potential special guardians much earlier in the process. Uh, and then there were more sort of general recommendations, for example, better preparation and training for special guardians. And they were very much comparing special guardians to adopters who were given all this training. Uh, and there's no training uh, uh, available for special guardians. Uh, another aspect they particularly focused on was the combination of supervision orders alongside special guardians. And what they were saying was that they couldn't see why you would want to make a public law supervision order, which, uh, Mark, as you know, it is, um, it invites the local authority, directs the local authority to advise the friend and assist um, the, um, the carers of children. What, what that would add to what should be a comprehensive support plan uh, and they felt that supervision orders were being used as a sticking plaster for risky placements so a way of, um, uh, of really 
the same to the local authority from the court. Well, I'm not very sure about this placement. So rather than not make the order, I'm going to make the order, but then attack on the supervision order. Uh, and that was described as a red flag, but really that should be happening much less often uh, than it had in the past, because there should be no need, as I've said. Uh, and the other aspect, really, of immediate change is what they call a renewed emphasis on parental contact. Uh, and I think what that's really driving at is that all too often special guardians were left to manage unmanageable situations, which is trying to facilitate contact to parents at quite a high level when they didn't have either the facilities or the skill set to enable that to happen. Because you appreciate it can be very confusing for children. On the one hand, to be told that um, they're living permanently now with their grandparents or uh, with an aunt and uncle or, or uh, with our other carers, um, but then have a high level of contact with the parents, it can be a bit undermining potentially mm. of the placement. So, so there was there's to be that sort of renewed emphasis on, on parental contact. There's to be a new best practice guidance, which is really looking at time frames. So um, 26 weeks is, is not to be taken uh, as setting the longest time frame for proceedings where you've got uh, special guardianship in play. So what in fact it suggests is that where there's a need for longer proceedings, um, sometimes perhaps a year, up to a year after placement, then the proceedings should continue so that they can monitor the success of the placement and only really make the final order uh, once the placement is secured and clearly uh, in, in the children's best interests. So it was taking away this pressure to some extent to conclude proceedings within 26 weeks uh, and actually taking away also changing the way that court statistics are managed so that cases that do take longer are not necessarily measured in the same way. So courts and senior judges are not criticised for cases taking too long, uh, because there's clearly good reason in these sort of cases why there needs to be an appreciable period of time. I suppose that also that that um, that helps the, the sort of the extra flexibility for the 26 weeks helps if a special guardian doesn't immediately appear but sort of halfway through proceedings, you get a parent and go, oh, hang on, actually, I've got this aunt who the children get on really, really well with. Please assess her. Um, that, I imagine, can sometimes derail the, the strict 26-week process. Yes, inevitably, those sort of situations. You, are, you either uh, have a situation which is not child-focused. So judge saying, well, I'm sorry, but uh, we're three months into proceedings and we've only got three months to go. We can't possibly complete this assessment process, so I'm going to rule out that potential care. Well, clearly that wouldn't be a child-focused approach. Mm. Courts always recognise that. Uh, there is a need, however late in the day, uh, these potential carers um, become a potential carers to, to assess them. But what the pressure will then not be on judges to say, well, you've only got four or six weeks to assess. If it is going to take longer, it's going to take longer because all of this process has to be driven by welfare. And yes. it's clearly in a child's uh, best interest to be brought up by family or, or kinship carers generally than to be placed in a public care system. Absolutely, particularly if adoption's on the table. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I know that the report has made effectively recommendations for immediate change. 
and then recommendations for longer term change and those are perhaps ones that might need changes to primary or secondary legislation um in your opinion what changes are we actually likely to see in in the i'll say the near future is in the, in the next six to twelve months well i think we will see the immediate changes brought in um so there will be um an enhanced focus on assessments uh, and support plans i think judges and practitioners will just be more aware of the sort of issues that are going to arise and certainly as i already said less pressure on completing cases within a fixed time frame but there are longer term issues that are going to need to be addressed in, in in the you know in the foreseeable future those sort of issues are looking at whether there's a different way of managing these cases so at the moment um, the legal framework most often used is is interim perils. So children will be placed with potential special guardians under an interim care order that will keep the proceedings alive for however long is necessary. But there are potential problems with uh, interim care orders, in particular for potential special guardians who may not qualify as local authority foster carers. That there, there may be particular reasons, for example, health reasons, which would rule them out as potential foster carers, but wouldn't rule them out as potential special guardians. And so you can have a situation where the court wants to approve a placement under an interim care order, but the local authority put up barriers and say, well, that's rather difficult because we can't approve them as foster carers. So there's quite a lot of discussion in the report about more creative ways to uh, have interim placements. And two uh, primary examples are given. One is uh, the potential for an interim special guardianship order, uh, which doesn't exist at the moment. Much that would be that would need a change in the law. Yes, it would need a change in the law. So you would have uh, uh, much as you could uh, a residence order that um, or child arrangements order now that would be reviewed within a period of time. You could have a special guardianship order on similar terms. That's one potential option. Uh, another option, which I actually favour slightly more, is introducing a placement order process. So with adoption, you have that staging post of a placement order, uh, which vests uh, parental responsibility in the adoption agency, uh, but doesn't make a final adoption order. Uh, that staging post, if introduced into special guardianship, would be quite helpful because one of the advantages of the local authority retaining parental responsibility and therefore the child remaining looked after is that rather strangely under the regulations um, more support is available for potential special guardians if there is an immediate transition from looked after status to special guardianship rather than an interim status under a private law order now that all sounds very complex, but it's actually crucially important because local authorities' duties differ in those two different circumstances. And on, on potentially, the financial support available to a potential special guardian could be very different. So maintaining uh, parental responsibility in the local authority uh, could be very important. But again, all these options require um, legislation and so are, are potentially a whole way away. There also needs to be much greater training available, and it's not clear entirely from the report who's to provide that, but clearly special guardians need a lot more information 
and training. And I would add one other thing, which is that there should be, there needs to be greater public awareness. One of the um, facts to come out of the research that's been done is that generally the population doesn't really know much about special guardians and what it involves. And so you have stories of special guardians turning up to schools and, and doctors who you would expect to understand the law and what it means and being questioned about their status. Well, where, where are this child's parents? Well, I'm this child's special guardian. Well, I can't talk to you about the child. I need to talk to parents. And of course, that isn't the law gives parental responsibility no, to special guardians. But if, if the teacher or GP doesn't know that, then special guardians are going to find that, they're, that it's quite frustrating yeah. to be able to, to, to give, give that information. Quite often they're told to go away and to get the social worker to contact the school or doctors. And there may not be an active social worker in the case. And that, that can all cause delay for the child's uh, health needs or education needs to be met. Is, is that the, the most pressing perhaps issue is this this sort of imbalance for training and support for a, a special guardian versus a different kind of carer and there's really no logical reason why they they lack that trait or they they shouldn't be given that training it's surely best for the child to prepare them fully isn't it well yes you could argue that they have a greater need well exactly they're, they're not foster carers for example they're not, uh, and they're left to manage what is the single most difficult issue, which is contact. Yeah. So the doctor, more often than not, is not left alone to manage parental contact. There may be, um, very often in, in uh, adoption cases, there might may either be very limited face-to-face -face contact or no face-to-face -face contact. Well, I was going to say it's more of a clean break, isn't it? Whereas if you go to an SGO, you're, you're staying within the family. So that, and the children will still be within the family and have an awareness of that proximity to their parents. Yes, so uh, how, how do the uh, special guardians get across to the children this rather strange different status? I'm your grandparent, but I'm also your special guardian. Yeah. And that's a change in family dynamics that's complex. And the people you see on a Saturday are your parents, but they're not your primary carers. And so help with understanding and supporting those really quite important changes in family dynamics uh, are very much needed. Mm. Well, lots to think about. And uh, that, uh, you can see why that report was released uh, as effectively as a standalone report. Um, I think that's probably all we've got time for today. Uh, in fact, indeed, all we've got time for for this series. Uh, whilst we take a short break, please do get in touch with any ideas. Mine and Tara's emails are on the website and in previous podcasts. The next series, we're going to feature more nutshell guides again, and episode one will deal with what you need to know about variation of nuptial settlements. Leslie, thank you so much for joining. It's been a real privilege to hear you speak about special guardianship orders. My, my pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Leslie. Thank you for everyone that's listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.